Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Father, as we join together this morning as your people, I, um, I'm thankful for all my friends who are here, and um, I realize I don't, I don't, I don't know where we've all been this week and what all the experiences have been for us. Some, some of us had have had great weeks. Others have really struggled um, with perhaps some bad news or a broken relationship or some expected trial that's come upon. Um, them and maybe their family. I mean, I don't know. But Lord, you know where we've been. You know where we are in life. You know our victories, our failures. You know everything about us. And I pray as we join here together as your people, that we would not only sing about uh, your promises, but we would experience them. You have promised never to leave us or forsake us, no matter what. And so even this morning, may we have a great and deep sense of your presence here with us by the power of your spirit at work. We offer this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 1. Hopefully you have one with you, a Bible with you. If not, you can use one. You should find one down in one of the chair racks around you. Acts chapter 1. By the way, I just want to say uh, kind of ahead of time, thank you for your patience regarding the renovation project that's just got started. I know uh, it's dusty and messy over there, um, and I realize that it's a bit of an inconvenience, and it's going to be that way for uh, a few months until we get it done. But I'm thinking of it this way. If that's the worst inconvenience we face in life, we're going to be okay, right? So thank you ahead of time for your patience. Um, but it's, it's going to be nice when it's done. I actually got a chance to go over, and, and there, it's all demolition right at the moment. But I went over, and they said, you got to put on a hard hat. And I'm like, I don't need a hard hat. I needed a hard hat. I went and I tripped on a ladder. I banged my head. I mean, and the thing is, when I bang my head, everybody knows I bang my head because I don't have anything to cover it. So um, all you hair people can make mistakes and no one knows, but um, not me. Anyway, uh, thanks for your patience ahead of time uh, as we get that going. So Acts chapter 1. Um, as some of you uh, may have heard know, we are starting today... Uh, a new series, a study of this first, uh, this first century document that basically records how the early Christian church and the message of God's love and grace went, as we would say today, it went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the, um, the isolated streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. Uh, historians, many historians consider it to be w- one of the most amazing phenomenon in all of history, that a small, a small, diverse group of Jesus followers, both men and women, could initiate and lead a spiritual movement that would become the dominating faith of the mighty pagan Roman Empire. You know, a movement that would change not only an empire, but would change the world. A movement that continues today with some two billion people, about one-third of the world's population, calling themselves Christian. I mean, how and where did that all begin? What exactly happened? And who was involved? Well, thanks to a writer named Luke, we have at least some of the story. Uh, And in case you don't know this, we're talking about the same Luke who, uh, along with Matthew, Mark, and John, wrote a biography on Jesus, which then makes this text, known as Acts, a sequel. In fact, Luke references his previous work in the opening statement of his book. In chapter 1, verse 1, he writes this, 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. Over uh, over uh, some time here, we're going to look at uh, this entire book. Not, obviously not today, but uh, over a period of time, we're going to look at the entire book of Acts. And this morning, I just want to share sort of an introductory overview uh, of the text that I think I think will help get us started and uh, and set a good foundation for the rest of the study. So let me begin by just saying that uh, there's really no. Uh, there's no debating it. There's not a lot of questioning it. Both ancient historians and contemporary scholars agree that uh, the author of this document, written somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D., is the same guy who penned the detailed biography of Jesus, and his name was Luke. We know some things about Luke. We know that Luke was uh, a Greek. He was a Gentile from Antioch in Syria. Uh, he was a follower of Jesus, at times a companion of the Apostle Paul. And we know that Luke was a doctor by profession, and therefore, like other physicians of the day, Luke was highly educated in classical Greek literature, uh, religion, philosophy, and science. But, you know, because he lived 2,000 years ago, there are some people who tend to dismiss the fact that, that he was a doctor, especially when compared to, to doctors today. And that's unfortunate, and here's why. It's because although Luke, obviously, you know, he didn't know about antibiotics and bacteria and anesthesia and CAT scans and those kind of things, uh, he wasn't ignorant by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I mean, think about this. Most of us in the, this room are familiar with Hippocrates, right? I mean, we learned about him, or supposedly learned about him in high school history class. H- Hippocrates was a, um, a very famous Greek physician who is still considered to be the father of modern Western medicine. Most graduating medical students today still take what's called the Hippocratic Oath, a vow of commitment to ethics and medicine that uh, Hippocrates uh, wrote. I mean, he was a very prominent historical figure, just a brilliant guy who lived nearly 500 years before Luke. And yet his writings were used as textbooks in medical schools right up into the middle of the 19th century. You know, many of his observations on diseases and on treatments of those diseases are still respected and valid uh, here in 2015. The point being that first century Greek physicians weren't a bunch of primitive knuckleheads. Not at all. They were a very, very intelligent, educated group of people who, like Hippocrates before them, had to, had to be keen observers of the human experience uh, because they couldn't rely on lab tests and MRIs like doctors can today. And, and so in many respects, one might argue physicians in the first century had to, be, had to be brighter and more skilled than those today because of when and where they practiced medicine. So here's my Reiki summary. These are very sharp people, very sharp people, highly educated in multiple disciplines. And so right from the start, it's pretty clear that Luke brought with him all of his education and uh, all of his training, his skills of observation and scholarship, not just to practicing medicine, uh, but to, to writing this report on the history and the experience of the early church because he writes with a sophistication, uh, this really just a, um, a very um, 
academic style and, and uses grammar that's very, very proper and very refined. In fact, his introduction is typical of, uh, of classic Greek literature. Just as he did with his previous book, Luke begins by identifying the, the, the intended recipient of this document, who happened to be a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. Now, no one knows exactly who Theophilus was, but in the opening paragraphs of Luke's biography in Jesus, he refers to this same guy using a specific title. He calls him Most Excellent Theophilus. And in first century Greco-Roman culture, this was a common way of addressing a person of, of honor, of influence, of wealth. It was often used of someone holding an official uh, position of some sort or another. And so there are a lot of theories out there on who this guy was. Uh, some suggest it was Theophilus ben Ananus, who happened to be the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem from 37 to 41 A.D., a few years later, another guy named uh, Metathius ben Theophilus served as high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. But I, I was thinking, uh, well, then why would, why would Luke have to write uh, a report on the early church in Jerusalem to a religious official already in Jerusalem who no doubt was quite aware of what was happening on the religious scene there? That, didn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, other historians agree, and so they suggest that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman officer that uh, Luke just happened to know. Others suggest there's evidence that uh, this, this person was a member of Caesar's uh, household. And still others propose he was a government official in Luke's hometown of Antioch, Syria, uh, and there are some second century documents that record the work of a quote-unquote great leader who ruled in Antioch at this particular time, and his name was indeed Theophilus. And so while, uh, while it's fascinating and fun to, to kind of theorize on who this guy was, the fact is we don't know. And uh, it really doesn't matter. Because just like authors today who begin their books with, with dedications you know, to parents, to spouses, to children, to colleagues, or to a significant person in their lives... Um, Luke does the same thing here. He does the exact same thing. I mean, Theophilus could have been anybody. It could have been a, a friend. It could have been a patient. It could have been an official of some sort. It could be that Theophilus wasn't a Christian. And so Luke writes about Jesus and the church uh, and dedicates his literary work to this person and hopes the guy will read uh, the document and, and ultimately come to faith. In fact, uh, Luke ends the book rather abruptly, causing some scholars to think that he planned to write a threequel, you know, volume three, uh, a trilogy. But um, if, if that was his intention, he either uh, never got around to it or his work was lost to history. Uh, but whatever the case is, uh, this document was intended for a specific uh, individual. Certainly, its contents help establish the history of the church for everyone and anyone who reads it. Speaking of content, um, as we move through the text, what we're going to find is that the book has a number of recurring uh, topics and themes. Uh, from here in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 28, uh, there, there are certain things Luke mentions again and again and again, which uh, only make sense when you begin to identify what those things are. You know, a prime example uh, is Jesus. You know, his life, his, his teaching, his death, his resurrection talked, is talked about all the time, which, because it's germane to Christianity, right? I mean, Jesus is the head of the church, so obviously he's going to be a main subject in Luke's book, which we see to be the case uh, right from the start. In verse 1 he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So essentially Luke reminds Theophilus that he was picking up right where he left off uh, in his first book with Jesus resurrected from the dead. 
In fact, verse 3, he presses that reality. He says, you know, after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, his followers, gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 uh, days and spoke about the kingdom of God on one occasion while he was eating with them. And I'm going to stop right there because I want us to think about this for a second. I mean, what is Luke saying here? He's he's saying that after Jesus' suffering, his death, his crucifixion, he presented himself. He he showed up. He presented himself to his followers. And he gave them convincing proofs that he was indeed alive. He appeared to them. He speaks to them. Uh, On one occasion, he eats with them. What is Luke saying? He's saying that Jesus wasn't some disembodied consciousness or ghostly apparition that was floating around haunting people. He says Jesus was truly alive. He could walk, he could talk, he could dialogue, he could drink, he could eat, he could touch, he could be touched. Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. A lot of people saw him, experienced him, hung out with him, discussed the kingdom of God with him, and it wasn't just a couple of times over a couple of days. It was over a period of 40 days. Several weeks has happened. A lot of people saw him. And his body was transformed from death to life, representing the promise of God's new creation for all who believe. Remember, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And his resurrection proved it to be true. And because of Christ's physical resurrection to life, for those of us who believe our resurrection is also assured, even in death, we too will be transformed. We will walk and and talk and eat and sing and celebrate and dance in the kingdom of God. We will not float over it or through it. And so Jesus, you know, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, uh, it's it's a recurring theme in Luke's book. And therefore, so is his gospel of grace. I mean, again and again and again, Luke records how Jesus's message of God's love and grace was being shared with and offered to everyone and anyone. And understand, in the cultural context of the time where works-oriented religion had pretty much beaten down the masses, just, just debilitated people, a majority of people, every, just everyday people had given up hope on God, on ever being good enough for God, because they were caught up in this performance idea. And for those people, the unexpected, the unprecedented, the unparalleled idea of divine grace was viewed as remarkably good news. And Jesus, God had come to do for humanity what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the life we could never live, and he died the death we deserve to die to set us free from sin and judgment. Uh, Jesus' perfect sacrifice the shedding of his blood pays the penalty for our rebellion. So it's, it's critical we, we understand that biblical Christianity is not and never has been about what we can do for God. It has always and only been about what God in Christ has done for us. It's about God's grace and And it was this good news of grace that people so weary of religion desperately needed to hear. And when they did, I'm telling you what, man, many of them embraced it and put their faith in Jesus. Another thing that Luke mentions a lot in the book and gets actually gets right at it here in the opening comments is is the Holy Spirit of God. You know, he says uh, he says on one occasion Jesus was eating the disciples and he gave this uh, gave them this command. He said, "Hey, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about." For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke is going to talk a lot about, have a lot more to say about the indwelling presence of God's Spirit and how it became a powerful reality, not only in the the disciples' lives, but in the life of every believer. But uh, here, he's reminding his reader how there was was this time when Jesus pointed the disciples back to uh, the beginning of his own ministry. You know, in the days when John the Baptist, his cousin John the Baptist was out in the wilderness calling people to repent and then baptizing them. In other words, he was, he was symbolically and ceremonially washing people as a demonstration of their commitment, how their life was being changed and, and they, they were leaving behind this old life and the dirt of that old life and they're, they're, they're committing themselves to something new. And Jesus says, remember that? He says, well, here's the deal. When the gift my father promises shows up, it'll be kind of like that. Only instead of being immersed in water, you'll be immersed in the Spirit of God Himself. And that spiritual event and that ongoing reality is, is, going, is going to be a game changer. Because the Holy Spirit will empower you guys to live in a way that makes a difference in the world. Which brings us to another recurring topic and theme of the book, and that's the radical love and generosity of early Christians. Listen, one of the things that Luke helps us understand uh, is that the embracing of and the viral-like spread of Christianity in the first century wasn't just about Jesus' followers uh, preaching the truth of the gospel, but also living it. I mean, they didn't just go out and talk about the grace of God. They, em- they embodied it every day. They didn't just teach about loving, loving your neighbor. They went out and actually did it. Personal sacrifice wasn't merely the the topic of discussion in the church. It was the way of life for the church. In fact, at one point, Luke describes it this way. He says, all believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. They, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying what? Enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved those coming to faith. Here's my Reiki summary. In an age of brutality, in an age of dramatic social, class, gender, and racial divisions, the early church was the only institution in the world that brought unity between all people. The church was unique that way. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and Africans, young and old, Male and female, rich and poor, healthy and sick, educated and uneducated. They make no mistake about it. Christianity spread through the Roman Empire by doing uh, what pagan religions and philosophies didn't do, like loving those who were different than them. You know, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, serving the marginalized and forgotten, meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the community. So in short, Christian love and generosity was a convincing apologetic. But here's the deal. You don't have to take my word for it. In a letter written uh, in 120 AD to a guy named Diognetus, uh, Diognetus, excuse me, Diognetus, who happened to be a Roman scholar uh, and a tutor to the emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, a follower of Jesus who just refers to himself as a servant, writes to explain why Christianity was, going, uh, was growing so rapidly and impacting a Roman culture so dramatically. And so he writes this. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. 
When attacked, they rejoice as if given new life. Those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. They're treated outrageously but behave respectfully. They love everyone. They love everyone but are persecuted by all. They are poor but make many rich. They're short of everything yet lack nothing. They're mocked yet bless and give in return. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot more interesting stuff in that, that ancient letter, but essentially the author is writing and explaining to some pretty influential people around the, the emperor how, this, how, this, how this, this, the indisputable love and radical generosity of early Christians just marveled people, astounded them, and as a result, spiritually influenced Greco-Roman culture. Dr. Rodney Stark is a professor, uh, professor of social sciences at Baylor University, and he's uh, co-director of the Institute for Studies of Religion there. And he wrote a book a while back titled, and he's not a Christian, he wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure, Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. It's a long title, a mouthful. Uh, and it's a really long title, considering the book makes a rather simple point. Namely... That unity brought about by Christian love and generosity is one of the most significant factors contributing to the early church's explosive growth for the first 400 years after Jesus. Everybody recognizes uh, what happened and why the church grew. And so look, all this to say is throughout Luke's writing here, he's going to show us that it wasn't just what Christians said about Jesus but how they lived like Jesus, lovingly, sacrificially, that made the difference in their world. Now, at this point, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, all right, so this is all well and good, but why Acts? Why now? You know, why are we studying this? That's a fair question, so here, here's my reasoning. Over the last few months, I've been reading this book by Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness. And I've been reading it slowly because it's kind of got some heady stuff and it. it's called Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. And he has a lot to say. Guinness has a lot to say about you know, many of the issues and the complexities and the challenges that face the Western church today moving forward into the future, like globalization and how that impacts us and, and all these kinds of things. But at one point in the book, uh, he, he writes this. He says, one of history's paradoxical lessons is that the church goes forward best by going back first. The church goes forward best by going back first. And I've been processing that statement for a while now because in some ways it just seems unfashionable. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's somewhat counterintuitive. And the thing is, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to learn that the first century church wasn't perfect by any means. You know, Luke is quite fair in recording some of the mistakes, the struggles, the, 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 the disagreements and failures of, of early Christians. But what I've come to realize is that, that Guinness isn't suggesting we go back to an era. Instead, he's suggesti suggesting that we go back to what matters most, or at least what should matter most to us as the church, and more accurately, to who should matter most, and that's Jesus. I mean, think about what Luke says here at the beginning of his book. He says, uh, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach. All he began to do and teach. Notice he doesn't say what Jesus finished doing and teaching. And that's significant. Why? 
Because Luke's making the point that the ministry of Jesus was ongoing. He's saying, he's saying that this is only the beginning. The time had come for Jesus to leave his followers to continue the work he began and to pursue the mission that he gave them, and that was to go out into the world and make a spiritual difference. And what that means is, even when we get to the end of this book, that the story of the church continues to unfold, it continues to be written, and we're, we're part of that story. And so as I, I was thinking about that, and I realized, you know, every, everything that's happening here at Parkview, from our work and partnerships in places like India and Europe and the Middle East and the Philippines and other locations around the world, to, to our more regional efforts to help under-resourced families and, and students, uh, to, um, to everything that happens right here in our local community, my prayer is that by studying this, this book of Acts, that we will be reminded how the church, the church was established and launched into a pluralistic culture, not just for spiritually convinced people, but especially for those who remain unconvinced, for those who either you know, didn't believe in God or, si- or simply didn't know what they believed about God. And with those folks in mind, our focus is going to remain on Jesus and sharing with people the truth about his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And we're going to communicate the amazingly uh, good news of God's grace, grace both by what we say and what we do. And we're going to humbly rely on the Spirit of God to lead us and empower us to live lives of radical love and generosity to such a degree, to such a degree that just like the early church, we too will become a compelling and convincing apologetic to a lost culture. And while not everyone we speak to and serve and sacrifice for will come to faith in Jesus, our genuine love for them, no matter what, will make the invitation to do so a whole lot more attractive and hard to reject. Because here's the deal. By looking back, we know that Jesus and his church changed the world, not by force, but by love and compassion. And may the same be true for us as the church moving forward into the future. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, it amazes me how... um, no matter how, how, how much things have changed in 2,000 years, how things still remain the same. At least many of them. I, I think of how the church, you established your church, you launched your church into a pluralistic culture where many religions were embraced, where there were people who believed in no God or gods, were those who didn't know what they believed. And as we think more about that culture, it sounds remarkably similar to the one in which we live. A very pluralistic society where all religions are tolerated. The question is, how do we live in that kind of a society? And how do we live well? And how do we how do we make a difference? How do we represent you with our lives? Thank you for Luke and for the fact that he recorded the events that unfolded in the life of your church in the earliest days. At least some of them. And we can read and we can, we can see what was happening and who was involved and what went right, what went wrong. We can learn from that, uh, from the experiences of the, the, the early church. 
But most importantly, Lord, as we read it, we can learn about who you've called us to be and how you've called us to live and how it really ultimately comes back to Jesus who changed the course of human history by the, by the way in which he loved all of us and demonstrated that love by giving himself as the sacrifice for human rebellion and sin and was resurrected to life guaranteeing our life beyond the grave. It was his sacrifice that has made the difference. And it's faith in him because of your grace that we are changed and we have hope and peace. It's all about him. May we be reminded of that, not, not simply as we read the book of Acts, but as we sing and pray and worship you today together. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? not of anything I've done, nothing good I've done. I mean, that is the message of the gospel, folks. Um, maybe, I don't know where you all are in your spiritual journey. Maybe maybe you're, you're here today and you've just, you've been beaten down by, by religion in the past. It's just filled your life with guilt. And, uh, and you've just spent a lot of time away from God. That's very similar to people in the first century. They had given up hope of ever impressing God or that God would love them. And Jesus came and said, it's not about what you do, it's about what I'm going to do for you. It's about God's grace and His love that's demonstrated in and through Jesus. And embracing that, understanding that, and putting faith in Jesus as Savior, that's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you guys get it, and if not, keep coming, because I'm just going to continue. And, uh, and I hope you come back for this, uh, the rest of this series, because I think looking at, at how the church operated in a pluralistic culture like like Greco-Roman culture, I mean, we're going to learn a lot because we live in the same kind of culture. We're going to see it even in the first century church. They, uh, Christians got, you know, kind of got a bad rap in some respects because no one really wanted to hear about uh, this new news in, in terms of the authorities and, because it challenged their power structures. And, and yet the, the church kept, kept talking about Jesus and kept loving people the way Jesus loved them. It just blew up the, the empire and it changed the world. So I think you're going to find it helpful. I know I've, I've already, I got it planned out through May, so we're all good to go for a while. <laughs> uh, so come back next week. We're going we're to keep moving forward. And okay, Maybe you're here this morning. You have some questions about Christianity. Maybe you're here and you just had a really rough week, got some bad news or something. Our prayer team folks will be up here for you. Just come down and talk with them. They're, they're happy to pray for you and just spend some time. Okay? Let me pray for you as we're, as we're dismissed. And now, Lord, as we, uh, we go back into our own very pluralistic culture, uh, may we go with this unparalleled, unexpected, unprecedented news of your love and grace uh, that we have offered to us in Jesus. May we live our lives in such a way that we become uh, convincing apologetic and that we will point people to you, their God. Enable us to do that, I ask. May your hand of grace and peace and strength rest on your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.